0: Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in B.C. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin.
1: Well, making news this week, there is more fallout from Bill C-18, the Online News Act. And in fact, it pits our country, Canada, against Facebook, Facebook, and the company, the parent company, Meta, and Google. Well, Michael Geist has been following this one for well over a year as it's uh, been in play. He is the Canadian Research Chair in Internet and E-Commerce Law and Professor of Law at the University of Ottawa. Michael, thanks so much for joining us.
0: My pleasure. Thanks for having
1: me. Uh, A lot has emerged from this, and most of it is seen as not really good news, a lot of apprehension as uh, Bill C-18 becomes a reality. And we're seeing this uh, with fallout and reaction and counter reaction uh, with Google and uh, Facebook. Is all this concern warranted? What say you?
0: Oh, I think it is. Um, You know, I think this is a terrible own goal by the government and Heritage Minister Pablo Rodriguez, in which I think everybody loses. You know, I mean, it looks like where we are headed is is that people who do use social media like Facebook to share news in Canada won't be able to. Search results won't be as good on Google. The Canadian news sector, who this who was designed to be supported by this bill, is going to take a massive hit, potentially losing large amounts of traffic, have, facing canceled deals, and really losing millions of dollars. And Canadians themselves um, take a hit. And all of this because the government didn't even want to really listen to the concerns and criticisms associated with the legislation and moved ahead with, I think, really the riskiest possible
1: approach. Well, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Uh, I guess they may have looked at Australia and said they're doing it okay there. Let's talk about what's happened in Australia a little bit, because there is a lot of reference to, uh, to this case.
0: There has been. And I think in some ways the government relied too heavily on the notion that, well, if it worked out in Australia and if they ultimately came back to the table, they being Google and Facebook, they do the same in Canada. But I think they're really drawing the wrong lessons. You know, in many ways, the Australian law had some important differences that actually gave the government in Australia the scope to negotiate some deals specifically with those companies that, that brought them on board and actually excluded them from the law. Uh, Here in Canada, the government doesn't have a lot of wiggle room. And those deals in Australia were concluded several years ago, back when the economy was different. You know, Facebook has laid off tens of thousands of people in recent years. The value of news, I think, is perceived to be different. And now that so many people are looking at what's taking place in Canada, around the world, who think about potential legislative approaches, it actually, I think, makes it less likely that the companies will flip or cave some ways they want to move past that Australian model so that bad for us that there's a Canadian model of what happens when a government creates legislation that mandates payments for linking. We're not talking about use of content, we're talking about just links. And the companies say that that's that's a bridge too
1: far. Now, Google is uh, the search engine used most often. Do we know if this is going to extend to other search engines? Can you just get around it by, uh, you know, switching to something like, um, well wow. internet explorer or whatever it's become now
0: right i think you're thinking of bing yeah it, yeah you probably could do that um the law really just at this stage just does target those two companies and i think that's a that's a problem because it highlights that people do share links on a whole series of services it's it's a little bit hard to understand why a link on let's say bing or a link on twitter um, or link on TikTok somehow is outside of this, but the links from those two services is included. And especially as we move towards more and more generative AI, I mean, I think there's a sense that more that's how people more and more will see some of this news. Legislation doesn't address that at all. And so the government's not only dug itself into a hole with this legislation, but it's created a bill that, that doesn't really look ahead to where
1: much of this is, is moving. Let's back up just a little bit and take a look at the challenge here the government was trying to address. What was that? Well, I think it's readily apparent to many that the, the news sector has struggled
0: and that there's been a, a real rise in, in the success from, on digital advertising with those two companies. I think the mistake was thinking that there's a connection between the news linking on those sites and their success in digital advertising news just doesn't have very much to do with any of that so the government was looking for a solution it could have identified a number of other possibilities that wouldn't have raised the risks associated with mandated payments for links the concerns around risks to independence of the press but instead, it went with this approach, and you know, had it taken some a different track, for example, a fund model, where we would have compelled these companies to contribute a portion of the revenue into a fund to fund journalism, not to fund big com- big media companies that are indebted, or the public broadcaster like the CBC, but rather a fund journalism the companies themselves seem to suggest they might have been willing to go along with that. But once you say mandated payments for links with uncapped liability, they don't even know how much they're going to be on the hook for other than hundreds of millions of dollars. Companies have made it really clear from day one that that this was something that they weren't comfortable with.
1: The thing that always surprises me with, uh, this type of legislation is the fact that governments and the Canadian government thinks that there is this wall, this magic line along the 49th parallel that uh, will never change. And we can regulate everything on one side and protect us from everything that happens down south. Is that the forward thinking that's guiding us now going into the future? And will technology kind of make this a moot point?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's less about sort of the ability for Canada to craft its own legislative solutions. I think there is scope to do that Uh, and more about making some bad choices. You know, I think if we were concerned about big tech and there are absolutely reasons to think about appropriate regulation we should have started with privacy and data data issues that these companies have and and yet the government has slow-walked that legislation they've really allowed it to languish and instead they've prioritized things like bill c11 the streaming act that raised concerns about regulating user content and now bill c18 that really threatens ironically threatens the news sector itself by leading us to a point where we may find news sharing blocked on Facebook and news links removed from Google.
1: You know, the other thing that surprises me here is an assumption that there is a strong Canadian media right now that's able to fill any void. Uh, This may have been kind of something that was in the thinking long before we saw or started to see so many cuts right across the country, right?
0: well you're you're right that this has been a tough time to be sure. I do think though that we've seen the emergence of a lot of new independent digital first media um so while the government often cites about cites all the closures that have taken place, there have been hundreds of of new entities that have emerged they're they're obviously not as large as some of the more established ones, but it does point potentially to new innovation and where we may be headed. Part of the problem with the government's legislation is that it it may ultimately harm those new innovative sources the most. I mean, they're the ones that are looking to build audiences, will use social media to do it uh, alongside search. And if they get cut off there, uh, they're the ones that will be hit the hardest. And that's really where in some ways we ought to be focused in terms of the opportunities that some of these these new services
1: offer. We're talking with Michael Geis, Canadian Research Chair in Internet and E-Commerce Law and Professor of Law at the University of Ottawa. Michael, let's talk about uh, timelines here and impacts. What are we going to see that's different now with this legislation and when?
0: Well, I don't see anything immediately. Both companies, Google and Facebook, they will stop either news sharing or news links on their platforms before the law takes effect. And actually, the government had a bit of an out up until about a week or two ago, where the law originally was only going to take effect once regulations were passed. So they could have actually stalled and tried to find some solutions. The, at the 11th hour during the legislative process, they added an amendment that said that the law will take effect within six months. So uh, they're on the clock. It will take, take effect by the end of the year. And it's reasonable to expect that by uh, that end of the year, we'll see these companies uh, remove the links right, or remove uh, the sharing
1: if, in fact, the legislation remains in the state that it currently is. Do you foresee some negotiations happening between the uh, companies like Google and uh, Meta, Facebook, and uh, the Canadian government, or do you think this is set and done? Yeah, that's a great question.
0: You know, I, I think the two companies are a little bit, are each have their own path here. You know, I think Meta, Facebook has been clear from day one that. News just isn't a big part of their platform. It's about three percent of user feeds, highly substitutable. People spend the same amount of time on the platform, whether it's news or other people's you know friends' pictures. And so it doesn't sound like they're they're all that interested in finding middle ground. they They're just uncomfortable with the legislation and in some ways not unhappy about exiting the news space. Google, on the other hand, clearly has been having conversations. they I think want to find some kind of solution. And I expect that we probably will see some negotiations. You know, some people are liking it to a game of chicken and we'll see who, who caves. But, you know, I think the, the problem with that kind of just, you know, the battle between big tech and big government is that there are a lot of jobs that are at stake here. There's a lot of businesses that, that hang in the balance. And, you know, this is just, you know, it's not a sporting event. You know, this, is, this
1: is one that has real consequences. I like that analogy, not a sporting event. Not one indeed. Michael Geist, uh, thanks so much for sharing your insights. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Earlier this month, two Fraser Valley foster parents, a married couple living in Lake Aroch, or by Lake Aroch, between Mission and Agassiz, were sentenced to 10 years in prison for manslaughter and six for aggravated assault for their torture of two children, a brother and a sister. In foster care, the 11-year-old boy died after a beating on February in February of 2021. At the time of his death, he weighed less than 65 pounds. This has prompted a call, a growing call, for the resignation of the children's minister. And yesterday, the BC Greens came out with Adam Olson also echoing this call, and saying that there is a need now for systemic change real change in the system. We had an opportunity to talk with Adam Olson and ask him why now and why make this call for Dean's resignation or firing?
2: Well, look, I mean, I think that we've seen uh, over decades in this province, but in m- most recent times, we we continue to see uh, uh, this minister let down the most vulnerable children uh, in our society. And uh, as we encounter the the horrific details of, of this uh, most recent uh, situation in the, in the Fraser Valley uh, it was it, it is time it's time for the premier to uh, uh, be accountable uh, it's time for the minister to be accountable uh, and the way that the premier does that is uh, he asks for the minister's resignation uh, or Minister Mitzi Dean steps down and um, and somebody else is brought in to to lead the necessary reformation of of the Ministry of Children and Family Development.
1: Well, there have already been some changes with the staff that were dealing with the file. Is that not enough? How does it become a political issue as opposed to a staffing issue within the ministry?
2: Uh, because ultimately, the responsibility lies at the feet of the Minister of, of Children and Family Development. And uh, the BCNDP know this. The BCNDP were asking for this uh, exact thing in in 2015. Uh, uh when a number of other cases uh, were brought forward this was when uh, premier when christy clark was the premier uh, stephanie who was the minister uh the BC NDP stood day after day demanding the resignation demanding accountability and so uh, the bcndp knows that this is uh that this is a necessary step in order to uh start a process it's not going to happen under this minister clearly we've been we've been asking for this uh, for Uh, since 2020 uh, we've been asking for this for longer than that and now what's needed is the premier needs to take responsibility for this ministry and undertake the necessary reformation of it that uh, that he knows and that his colleagues know uh, and that they've known for quite some time now needs to happen and and has not happened uh, over the last six years since the BC NDP has been in government.
1: Why is it that this one is so disturbing that you go so far as to call for that resignation?
2: Uh, well, f- from my perspective, uh, this case uh, this case is... Well, let's just put it this way. If anybody's read the details of the case, I'm not going to go into it here. Uh, they, it contains uh, some of the most horrifying details that anybody could read. In fact, it, it's... it's uh, it's it's grotesque and disgusting, and um, I think that uh, as we've seen over the last uh, number of years, uh, specifically since 2020, when uh, Mitzi Dean took over as the Minister of Children and Family Development, uh, we've seen reports of uh, hundreds of children uh, going missing from the child welfare system each month. We've seen children passing away. We've seen um, uh, we've seen uh, the minister stand and and um, defend uh, changes to the funding model for neurodiverse children uh, only to have the premier step in and change course uh, seemingly without the minister's knowledge what we're seeing here is a ministry that has been uh, that has been mismanaged uh, historically uh, it is now the the responsibility of Minister Mitzi Dean uh, to take care of that business and she's not done that and so uh, with the uh, with the most recent uh, uh, revelations that have come out uh, with respect to uh, this case of this 11-year-old boy that was uh, abused and tortured and in all manner of just grotesque uh, details. Um, it, it is time for uh, the BCNDP the BC to follow their own advice and uh, find some way to hold the minister who's responsible for this accountable. Uh, it's, it is remarkable that Premier David Eby uh, can stand and say that uh, this minister has his confidence when he 's seen in the the house just uh, eight years ago uh nodding in agreement with his colleagues who were calling for the resignation uh of uh, of a former minister for seemingly the, the the same thing which is to to have somebody be held accountable for this the The firings within the staff th- those are necessary h r um, uh moves uh, and you know that happens within an, an organization. Ultimately, the, the responsibility lands at the feet of the minister and at the premier, and they need to step up and show some leadership um, because the public confidence in this ministry, uh, I don't think, can get any lower.
1: What would the proper leadership within the children's ministry look like? What do they need to be doing that they're not doing?
2: They need to tear this ministry down brick by brick. We need have a child welfare system that British Columbians can be proud of. We need to have a child welfare system that uh, is actually protecting the most vulnerable children in our society. It has, this ministry uh, has failed to do that. Uh, we've, we've, the BC Greens have put out some, uh, the, some ideas over the last uh, last number of months and years. One of those could be regulating social workers, uh, and the, the BC NDP have, have failed uh, to do that. Uh, it's just basic um, regulation of of the people who are uh, looking after these children. So we need to. We, this ministry has historically uh, overseen, and you know, part of the challenge. I'm a First Nations person, and part of the challenge that has been raised by the First Nations Leadership Council here is that this ministry continue has has been used to separate Indigenous uh, children from their families. Uh, They've gone to a great extent to move those children into into foster care. Um, and, and uh, to separate those families. We see, uh, you know, millions, billions of dollars being spent every year to do that. Uh, it's time for us to modernize child welfare in this province, and and um, it, it can be done under this premier, uh, and he needs to to find the political will and, and just the will uh, to do that.
1: You talk about modernizing child welfare. What do we really need to do here, especially when it comes to the communities that you're hearing more of the problems with? Is there something that requires more consultation, better understanding, or is it a staffing issue? What are we dealing with?
2: Well, I think it, it, it's a systemic, it's absolutely a, it's a systemic issue. And uh, this is the reason why I'm saying it needs to be dismantled and and put back together again, because um, clearly um, the BC NDP have taken the same approach as, the former government that they criticized so soundly. Uh, They have continued to try to fix a system that's broken by tinkering around the edges uh, and that's not worked. We've had some patience with this BCNDP government uh, in their approach uh, and it continues to result in just horrifying outcomes and reports from the uh, representative of children and youth that are just completely unacceptable. We raised this issue in this past spring session, where we've got a situation where hundreds of kids go missing or are unreported, are reported to be missing every month in the child welfare system here in British Columbia. That's just uh, totally unacceptable. If the if the provincial government, if if British Columbia says these children are safer. Away from their families, that they need to be removed from their families, and then we have a system where they go missing. If we have a, a situation where uh, Ministry of Children and Family Development uh, can can uh, you know be absent from uh, children in care uh, for several months and have video evidence of of a shocking abuse and torture, uh, this is a system that is not delivering uh, what what I think British Columbians. Would expect, and that is a, a, a loving and compassionate care for the most vulnerable children in our society, and so that's where it needs to be start to be to be built. That's the foundation it needs to be built on, and um, that is not at the core uh, of this of this system. Unfortunately, this system has been designed to set mostly, you know, the, the vast majority of the of the children in care are indigenous uh, children, and it comes from a philosophy from decades ago that um, that uh, separating uh, indigenous children and families is, was, the, was the approach and so we need to, we need to have a system that is reflective of the values that we have today. We need to be caring for these children uh, because they are, like I've repeated here they are the most vulnerable in our society and we owe it to them We're a wealthy society we're a proud society we're a proud community we need to owe, we owe it to them to, to, to have a system that looks after them.
1: Well, it sounds like nothing here should be something you should be proud of when we have the court hearing that uh, during the sentencing, the dean's ministry, the children's ministry did not pursue appointments or home visits with a boy after July 27th, 2020. This is after he suffered those traumatic brain injuries. Did not pursue any home visits. Again, I come back to, is that a staffing issue or is it a understanding issue or do we even know and is that why you're calling for a whole you know systemic change
2: yeah it's it's a, it's the it's the it's it's all of those issues <laughs> you know i i think that the reality is is that um the, the fact that none of that happened the fact that uh that the you know that it's now 2023 and accountability is is, is at the staffing level uh, seemingly has been taken care of the, the, the people who lead these ministries, the deputy minister, the minister, the, pre, the cabinet, the premier, um, ultimately, the responsibility falls on them because you know as you work your way through the hierarchy or the organization chart, there are a number of people that are responsible all the way through that organization chart. at the end, it lands at the seat of the minister, and at the end, the premier has a responsibility. The former Premier John Horgan said, you know, former BC NDP Premier John Horgan said, when are we going to stop protecting the the ministry, the institution and start protecting the children? All I have to do is echo his own words. He said that in 2015 in the legislature. When is this when is his BC NDP government going to stop protecting the ministry and start protecting the children? That is the reason why it's become, I guess, a political issue. It's not really a political issue. This is an, a, 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 a governance issue. Who is accountable if the premier is going to stand and say he has the confidence in the minister that has allowed for this to continue to persist? Hundreds of children go missing. Standing up day in and day out and saying we're going to you know, continue to maintain a system that doesn't work for neurodiverse children, and then the premier himself has to step in and change course how is there how is there any possibility of confidence in that scenario and, and that you know premier david eby has said just this week that he has confidence in this minister well i can tell you first nations leadership council has been very clear very direct they've lost confidence and as we have seen this continue to grow i, I am i am very reluctant to call for a ministers resignation yeah. It took a lot for me to make this call because it's not a call I take lightly,
1: Mr. Olson. I can hear it. Need to know. I can hear it in your voice. Your voice tells me <laughs> that you're extremely upset about this, on the verge of either anger or tears. Am I right?
2: Well, it's both. It's I am. I am. I am angry, and I am sad. And British Columbians need to be. Uh, you know, they will have whatever emotions they encounter when they. When they um, when they deal with this, but for me, uh, you know, as this story has has come to light, and as the investigation from the R.C.Y. was announced earlier this week, and more of the details of this case have have become public, there is absolute. It is it is astounding that our premier can arrive at the decision to do nothing. It is astounding that our premier can arrive at the decision that the minister who has been responsible for this system over the last three years uh, in light of all of those other things that I've raised in this conversation can continue in this post. I, I, I just simply, I, I just simply cannot believe that, you know, building a wall around this and pretending like it's all fine and good and, and we're just going to keep going forward uh, is acceptable. It is, it is not. And so, um, uh, you know, I, I, here I am doing something that I've, I've never done before, which is, calling for the resignation
1: of a minister because we have got to that point. Okay, those are the words of Adam Olson. The BC Green MLA for Saanich North and the Islands. Now, here's a surprising shift in the downtown Vancouver core, and it's got some people asking some questions. The surprising post-pandemic shift is vacancies on the rise for office space to 12.3%. Now, that's uh, quite high considering this was an area just a few years ago that we were talking about the low single digits for vacancy rates in downtown Vancouver. So what's going on in the city? How are things changing after, well, well, coming out of the pandemic? Shouldn't say after the pandemic, still around, but after the height of the pandemic coming out, things have changed in the downtown core. But what is really happening? Well, Glenn Gardner is a principal at Avis Young. That's a commercial real estate firm. And he joins us now. Uh, Glenn, uh, what is going on with Vancouver? What can we make from 12.3%? Because that seems shocking to me.
3: Yeah. And that's, uh, uh, it, it would uh, for sure. When you look at it, especially where we were back in 2019, but there's a bit of a perfect storm when you, when you look at it holistically, uh, right? The, um, we had the pandemic, people obviously uh, started to work from home. Uh, that has slowly been sort of coming back. So that is one piece of the equation. Uh, in addition to that, downtown Vancouver added a number of new developments um, into, the, into the market, which regardless of whether there was a pandemic or not, was inevitably going to increase vacancy. Uh, and then the third piece of the puzzle is just that we've seen a downturn, especially from the technology industry, uh, in In how much space they are occupying, and, and you know they are the one i would say the one industry that 's definitely had the most difficulty getting people back into the office uh, so it 's kind of the those three specific occurrences that really resulted in in vacancy climbing up to where we see it today
1: I guess it 's a bit of a head scratcher because only a few years ago we were hearing about all the um, well it 's about two or three years ago we 're hearing about the tech unicorns in b c and there was a great deal of excitement around things like Amazon coming in with an office here and Microsoft having a bigger presence here. Now, all that has changed, as you mentioned. But was it a little bit fickle, fickle kind of to begin with? Is that how those in commercial real estate view tech? You know, t- tech, tech is a
3: pretty interesting um, sector because, you know, we we'll- a lot of people think of tech, they think of the Microsofts and the Amazons, but there are a uh, you know, variety of different technology companies today as compared to 10 years ago. You know, there's, there's law tech, there's accounting tech, there's all kinds of different technologies. You know, when you look at the big technology firms in our city, specifically Microsoft and Amazon, both of them have, for the most part, kind of kept the presences that they've committed to.
1: Um, it's really the
3: smaller technology companies that we're seeing giving back or uh, uh, um, trying to sublease their space. And, and part of that is just the, the crunch that they've seen financially uh, and the ability, you know, their access to capital is not the same as it was before. So one of the easiest ways or one of the quickest ways, I should say, to, be, to alleviate costs is to look at, you know, reducing the, 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 the costs on, on the facilities.
1: Now, when we talk about subleasing some of the space and uh, recouping some of the costs when you downsize, what are we looking at for the types of agreements that they're into? How long were the leases? Are the leases typically?
3: Uh, yeah, and then there's a variety of, you know, that's, that's, that's um, a difficult question to answer because every sublease is very unique and, and, and different with respect to the who it is that's subleasing the space, what building that space is in, um, you know, how long that sublease term is for. You know that can vary from from sublease to sublease, but what I will say is that high quality subleases in good quality buildings uh, have been and will continue to move very quickly. Um, you know, it's it's the older stock space that someone's been maybe occupying for fifteen or twenty years that that just is out of date and not updated for today's world. Those are the spaces that tend to sit around and not, uh, not, not move very quickly. You know, we, we did see uh, a number of technology companies put their spaces on sublease. There was very little activity, I would say, uh, you know, from, from you know, for the last 12 months. But as we sit today, uh, that world is, is slowly but surely changing. We're seeing a number of new entrants come into our marketplaces. You know, the, some of the technology space that was listed for sublease that was moving has now got multiple offers on it. So it's a bit of a positive news story uh, as we as we sit here today, when we see that vacancy number of twelve twelve point three percent that is the combination of headleys and sublease space, but it's also you know a moment in time for the past. It doesn't really have a look forward um, so you know as we look forward into that number, you know I, I think we're going to see that number begin to creep back uh, creep back down
1: now you've hit on something that I've got to ask a couple more questions about. Because I want to know what the shape of the city is going to look like. If it is not tech or even uh, the smaller tech, it's got to be something else. You're mentioning that there is interest in office space. Is there any sector that you're starting to see that is coming into our city that we haven't seen before?
3: Um, you know, you're seeing a lot of biotechnology firms um, begin to either uh, expand their presences here or or begin to come here. Um, AI firms, and I guess that falls into technology, but I think we're going to see AI begin to really take off in our city. Um, uh, you know, the technology world, by the way, just in general, um, we're continuing to see new entrants come from the United States into our marketplace, some for the very first time. Um, and then you see a lot of the very traditional type sectors, the law firms, the accounting firms, the financial uh, uh, companies um, have all been slowly but surely growing over the last two to three years. So, you know, the technology sector, I would say, is the one industry that we're, we saw have the largest slowdown. But it's starting to pick back up and, and all the traditional downtown Vancouver type tendencies that we've seen over the last 20 years, um, they're also continuing to grow. The mining industry has it's, it's definitely been seeing a lot of growth. Um, as as that industry has been doing very well um, both during the pandemic and then after the pandemic.
1: As my friends in tech would quickly point out, everything basically is tech, so it doesn't matter. There are so many definitions of tech out there. But that being said, I would imagine the height of the pandemic also increased the ability for us to understand that you can work from home and do so if you are law firms, accounting firms, uh, places like that that generally had a legacy presence in the downtown core. Are you starting to see an exodus from that as other interest comes in? What is uh, coming out of the pandemic? Are we work from home? Are we a mix? Or are we coming back into the office?
3: Yeah, again, I think that, that again, very specific per per company um, but generally speaking, I would say that, uh, that there's, there's an increased amount of flexibility that employers are providing employees. Um, but the one thing that I would say is consistent is that almost entirely, maybe some technology companies, not so much, but all of the other industries are requiring their employees to come back at least a portion of the time. Um, you know, if I was to pick the average on what we hear in the marketplace, it would be three days a week. Um, but in some cases, that's four and five days a week. You know what I think a lot of people are, are, you know, coming to the conclusion of it and realizing is that yes, you know, we can send our employees home and they can work from home, but if you want to look at the long-term growth of of a company and, and you know, recruiting, retention, um, training, um, you know, for a lot of these organizations, it's very difficult to do that kind of stuff over over Zoom or over over uh, over the internet. It really is the face-to-face interaction that is going to lead to the success of the company over the long term. And, and I think that's going to continue forward. But I do think it's a good thing is that, that, that employers, uh, as in the past, they wouldn't have done this, but today they will. They'll, there is an increased amount of flexibility to work with people's schedules. You know, if you're a parent dropping off or picking up your kid, working different hours than just nine to five that we traditionally always worked. Um, so I think that's a really good thing that's come out of the pandemic.
1: Okay, we're talking with Glenn Gardner, principal at commercial real estate firm Avison Young. And, um, you know, Glenn, when we start to take a look at Vancouver, how does it compare to what you're seeing in cities like Calgary and Toronto?
3: Yeah, and I think that's a great question. Um, You know, when you look at Vancouver, even just not just from Canadian perspective, from the North American perspective, you know, Vancouver really is the, the, the shining star of the entire commercial real estate world. So we have, uh, for North America, we have the lowest vacancy out of any major metropolitan city in in, uh, in Canada and the United States. So holistically, we're doing extremely well, um, you know, and, and that, that really has to do with the fact that, you know, we've had some some uh, um, big entrants into our market as of recently. We've had the Microsoft and Amazons, of course. Um, you know, I think we as a pr- province handled the pandemic very well. So people just didn't stay at home for as long as they did in other places. Um, but when you really look at our vacancy rate and compare it to any of the major markets, whether that's Calgary, Toronto, Montreal, New York, San Francisco, any of the major markets,
1: we really are
3: uh, a unicorn um, when you when you think about uh, where vacancy is across all the those markets.
1: And of course, Vancouver isn't the only city in the province. Uh, Is there another city that you're seeing that may be picking up some of the office space that traditionally went to the downtown core here in Vancouver?
3: Yeah, I I don't know if it's necessarily um, markets that are picking up stuff that is leaving downtown. It's really the fact that, and almost across the board, all of our suburban markets have been doing extremely well. Um, and, And they actually did, I would say, better than downtown did during the pandemic. Um, and I think that's a combination of a few things. One is it's, you know, it, typically it's closer to people's homes. Um, so that's obviously easier to get people to come in. Um, you know, it services different markets for, for a lot of our, our larger corporate clients. Um, so, you know, those markets are continuing to be important to them and they want to make sure they can be as close to their, both their employees and their, um, uh, and their clients. Um, and generally speaking, I think there's you know there's, there there hasn't been a, there hasn 't been a lot of development in those markets over the last couple of years there 's been some but not a tremendous amount so they didn 't have the large influx of space that we saw in downtown but, okay. you know, when you look, yeah when you look at vacancy holistically at ten percent across all the markets, you know we we are doing very well
1: Glenn, thanks so much for your insights. appreciate your time this morning, Glenn Gardner. And, you know, with it being Friday, I think it's time to turn to something that may be a little bit lighter. We've heard so much about some of the problems in downtown Vancouver. Let's talk about some of the great things that are happening. And there's one that comes to mind because it's just received a beautification upgrade or a little bit more paint. I'm talking about Pink Alley in downtown Vancouver. What is Pink Alley? Well, this has been around for a bit. It's also known, by the way, as Alley Oop. It is this alley located south of West Hastings between like Seymour and Granville. It used to be one of those very typical dirty alleys in downtown Vancouver, but thanks to some volunteers and thanks to some initiatives from like the downtown Vancouver business improvement association, it has turned into a vibrant pink and yellow urban space under the more awesome now project. And well, it's just received even a fresher, brighter coat of paint. One of those people that uh, has seen this and, gone on social media to say a fresh coat of paint just in time for the sunshine is Vancouver Councillor Peter Meisner. Peter thanks so much for joining us.
4: Hey Bruce happy to be here on this exciting topic.
1: Yeah you know I love urban spaces and especially when it comes to thinking of ways to make them look really fascinating and interesting. Tell us a little bit about uh, this alley as opposed to other alleys in Vancouver.
4: Yeah, I mean, if you haven't seen uh, Alley Oop, uh, definitely come check it out this long weekend during the beautiful sunshine we're going to have. But uh, it's essentially, it's a normal alley um, until they painted it pink a few years ago. And that's really made it a social media hotspot with, you know, Instagram uh, and TikTok. uh, Lots of uh, people filming there as a popular location. So as you mentioned, uh, the Downtown Vancouver Business Improvement Association, as part of their uh, placemaking initiative, just gave it a brand new fresh coat of paint. So it looks fantastic.
1: It does. Uh, It looks very different, too. I myself have not seen it. That's going to change. In fact, uh, I'm going to make a point of uh, dropping by sometime this weekend. But uh, the pictures are quite something, almost, and I mean this in a good way, cartoonish. I mean, you've got this bright pink and yellow that really lifts this space from what is a typical downtown back alley into something that is pleasing to the eye. Uh, it's amazing. Who came up with the idea?
4: Yeah, so I'm not sure exactly who came up with the idea, but it is a downtown Vancouver uh, BIA initiative. But what I think it shows is that these simple interventions can make a huge difference. So like you say, this was a regular uh, back alley. You know, We have many of them throughout downtown Vancouver, and they're not really you know, usually inviting uh, spaces where people like to spend a bit of time. Um, But just with a little bit of paint uh, and cleaning and uh, some graphics on the wall and a big I think there's a big uh, uh, ball kind of uh, balloon thing hanging from suspended from uh, the upper part of the alley. It made a huge difference and made this really into a destination. So it shows that uh, we have so many opportunities across our city to create amazing urban spaces and we don't necessarily need to spend a ton of money doing so.
1: Now, this is just one idea. I've traveled to different cities and seen some great art at work to really lift and revitalize areas that needed not gentrification per se, but needed a little bit something just to uh, give it a cleaner look. And I even think of areas like Portland, uh, which has done a fantastic job. Uh, Even areas of Las Vegas uh, have uh, taken some of the graffiti art and made it very interesting and very nice and appealing. What potential do we have in Vancouver for even more projects like this?
4: I think there's so much potential. So the city works pretty closely with Vancouver Mural Festival. They are doing murals throughout the city and have been for a few years. If you go by the city centre uh, motel on Main Street, for example, you'll see that they've painted that entire building uh, with murals. And that's now Artist Studios while that site awaits redevelopment. So I think there's tons of opportunities around the city. As you mentioned, um, I just got back from Montreal last weekend and they've done an amazing job with Uh, their urban spaces in terms of pedestrianizing streets but also adding pieces of art throughout the street uh, so not just like concrete barriers like we see sometimes, but actual little like stops of art throughout the street that people can go and interact with. So I think the sky's the limit and I'd like to see more of it in Vancouver. And I know that that's something Vancouverites want to see as well to make our city more exciting.
1: I love public art when done well, and I don't think it necessarily has to be expensive. However, that being said, there are those that say, hey, you know what? When it comes to property taxes going up, business taxes going up in a city, The last thing we need to do is spend money on this. But this is not the city that's spending money. This is actually groups. Or is it a combination of the two?
4: yeah for this project the alley is downtown vancouver bia so those are fees that they're collecting from their members as part of their placemaking initiative Um, and they're also doing other things as well so they have a summer movie nights that starts next thursday at the art gallery north plaza so they'll be showing movies outside for every thursday night for the rest of the summer and they have other initiatives as well throughout the downtown to activate urban spaces But on the public art piece, a lot of uh, new development includes a public art component. So that's a requirement uh, of the developer to fund public art. And that either goes into public art on the site or sometimes it goes into a fund for public art throughout the city. So it's not necessarily coming out of taxpayers' pockets. It's actually required as part of the development or through the BIAs that are funding it as well.
1: We're talking with Councillor Peter Meisner and talking about this one in particular, Alley Oop, which has just received a brand new coat of paint, pink and yellow, uh, looks kind of spectacular, cartoonish, but in a good way. Those are my words, not anybody else's. Uh, Peter, I know you just mentioned that uh, you've been to Montreal, Montreal and other cities around the world. What impresses you? What lessons can you take back uh, based on things that you've seen?
4: Yeah, I think the investment in the public realm. So I had been there previous to COVID, and this is the first time I've been back since then. So I noticed that they've redone several of their plazas and parks in the downtown area. So new pavers, uh, new seating, new uh, garden areas and landscaping. I think it made, you know, it looked incredible and people were utilizing it. So even at nine in the morning, there was lots of people in this one park with a whole bunch of tables and chairs. So we've done a bit of that in Vancouver already. I think the Art Gallery Plaza on Robson Street is a good example, but we can do much, much more. So we're working on it. We have the Gas Town. Uh, we're going to be. Uh, Studying the public realm in Gastown, in terms of improvements, we made that announcement a couple of weeks ago, and we're going to pilot uh, pedestrianizing Water Street either this summer or next. Um, but longer term, I think we need to look at areas uh, like Gastown, like Granville Street, uh, and some areas potentially in the West End that can become pedestrian priority areas. So that would be a uh, focus on pedestrians, and you know there'll still be access for deliveries and that sort of thing, but really creating that pedestrian realm for people to move through the area. I think that's what people want. They see it in other cities, and they realize that it makes their neighborhoods so much more enjoyable.
1: I want to pick up on Gastown and some of the other areas uh, right after the break, but uh, one thing that you did mention here is uh, pedestrian-friendly. When you say that, you realize, Peter, there are a lot of people that say and get their hackles up and uh, think, you know what? That's the last thing we need is uh, more cars or difficulty with getting around in cars or vehicles around Vancouver. It's already a mess. Um, Is there a balance? What are you looking at?
4: Yeah, I think there is a balance. And I think we've seen that Uh, again, just back to that art gallery plaza, they did close that block of Robson Street. And I remember when that happened, there was a lot of concern in particular about the bus route, uh, having to go around. But I think that there's, you know, measures that we can take in order to do it thoughtfully. So we're not, you know, causing huge traffic jams, for example, I don't want to see that. But there's areas that, you know, through engineering studies, we can determine that these would work pedestrianizing would work well with little impact on traffic but I do understand people's concerns about getting into downtown and how that can be challenging sometimes but I think we've also seen examples across the city with um, different interventions that we've had uh, making it uh, easier to get around as well and giving people options so they can get on their bike and bike across the bridge for example and feel safe doing that.
1: We're talking with Vancouver Councillor Peter Meisner about beautification and some of the other ways to rethink Vancouver. I'm going to pick up on Gastown and some of the other areas of focus right after the break with Peter Meisner. Mike is away. I'm Bruce Claggett in for him. Just before the break, we were talking about ways to kind of give a facelift or rethink some of the urban spaces in cities like Vancouver and the one that comes to mind that's just received a fresh coat of paint is alley oop pink alley it's that alley in vancouver in the downtown area that's got that pink and yellow look to it with a ball that's suspended at the far end and it's just uh got some nice new paint making it look very bright and animated for a back alley and uh you know it makes me think that there are other possibilities for urban spaces. Peter Meisner is a Vancouver City Councillor, and we're talking with him about some of the other projects underway. Peter, you touched on this also just before the break, but Gastown, we know that uh, Gastown's about to be changed for the summer. Some of that change already taking place. What are we looking at in terms of that space that could be a whole lot better?
4: Yeah, I think Gastown, there's so much potential. I mean, every tourist you think that gets off a cruise, a cruise ship, they walk down to Gastown. And it's a destination for Vancouverites, but everybody visiting our city, whether or not they're on a cruise ship or not. So I think there's a lot of potential there. Um, what we're looking at is to uh, launch a public realm uh, planning process. So essentially starting that process to see what the future of a Gastown is going to look like in terms of the street surfaces, the sidewalks the lamps, the street furniture, and also introducing more public art into the neighbourhood and piloting uh, some pedestrian priority uh, closures on the weekends, for example, in the summer of Gastown. Um, I think there's a huge appetite to be down there, and it's a fantastic venue for outdoor concerts and that sort of thing. So that's some of the things that we're looking at right now.
1: Is there the possibility or even talk that maybe some of this area right along uh, maybe the main streets in Gas Town could be closed to cars permanently?
4: Uh, we're looking at a few different options. I don't see a permanent closure in the cards right now. Um, I think we do need to maintain access for deliveries. And uh, there are some buildings in that neighborhood that are difficult to access if we were to do something like that. But I think what we can look at is what they do in Montreal, for example. I was mentioning uh, my trip to Montreal before, but on St. Catherine Street, for example, in Montreal, they close it during the summer. Uh, from I think it's about 9 to 5 or 7 to 5 during the day, and then they open it in the evening for deliveries and, and normal traffic. So there's lots of technology out there in order to do this. There's a retractable bollard that can come up from the street uh, at, you know, and be retracted and brought up to, to uh, block traffic, for example, or open the street to traffic. So we're looking at everything, but we're also cognizant of the fact that there's businesses down there that need to have access for deliveries and that sort of thing.
1: Gastown is such an important part for Vancouver for its history and for, in today's terms, uh, a tourist stop. But it's not quite there in terms of, you know, having maybe restaurants and cafes all the way along that are open and vibrant. It's not vibrant yet. It's got tourist traffic and tourist shops. But I think of some of the other cities around the world that have uh, their areas of historic jewels And this isn't one of them. How do we get there?
4: We're so close, Bruce. I mean, I think, you know, go down to Carroll and Water Street. They have closed off that section there. And we have restaurant patios there in front of those restaurants on Carroll, just near Water. I think with this temporary uh, piloting of street closures, that's going to give an opportunity for restaurants to, you know, put patios out uh, on the street temporarily that they can take away uh, when summer is over and just create that vibrancy, because I hear you, you know, I want to be able to walk down the street uh, that, you know, is traffic con or doesn't have traffic on it and sit down on a patio and enjoy a drink. And we need to create those opportunities all over the city, not just a gas town. But we have what it takes. We have the basic ingredients, I think. Now we need the policy to make it happen.
1: Well, sure you do. Uh, it's right by the water. It's uh, it's a beautiful area by its architecture, but you still have, uh, as we both agree, some challenges there. One of the ones that we haven't really touched on, but let's be honest, it's not the safest place in the world right now, is it?
4: I, I know some people are, are concerned about uh, being in the neighbourhood, and uh, we are doing what we can uh, to address Address those challenges. so uh, the the hiring has started for the hundred new uh, additional police officers that we uh, we promised during the campaign, as well as the uh, mental health nurses as well. So, that will, I think, make a positive impact on some of that uh, street disorder that people uh, are worried about. But I also think having more people in the neighbourhood, having more body heat, more people uh, coming down there also helps improve the perception of safety. So I know the BIA is doing what it can in terms of cleanliness, uh, litter pickup, graffiti removal, because I think those things also have an impact on people's perception of safety as well. So there's work underway and, of course, more we can do to ensure that people feel comfortable in the neighbourhood.
1: Sure. If you take a walk and a good walk uh, heading toward the east of uh, Gastown, you're going to be into an area that's got a lot of boarded up um, buildings, uh, a lot of people without homes living on the streets. And that still is a bit of a problem. Is that going to factor in? Is it, are we ready to take a reality check and say, yeah, we've got to solve some of those issues, too?
4: Absolutely. I mean, those issues need to be solved regardless of Gastown's revitalization or not. Um, you know, the situation in the neighbourhood uh, is is sad, and we do need major investment from senior levels of government in order to deliver the housing that people need. So we need to continue to replace the SROs of the neighbourhood with dignified, self-contained social housing, and we need much more of it. And the city can't do it alone. We do need that investment Uh, From senior levels of government.
1: Okay, Peter, next steps for uh, you and the city in going forward and looking into ways to make this area even better?
4: Yeah, so that uh, public ground planning process is going to kick off in the fall, the beginning stages of it, but I want to mention as well Granville Street because the Granville Street uh, planning process is underway and uh, people can participate in that. They can go to shapeyourcity.ca and participate in that. There's a few workshops. They can leave feedback. That's another area that's uh, is uh needing some love, and uh, that process is already underway, so I'd encourage people to go check that out.
1: Are we still going to call Granville Street or are we going to come up with a, a permanent i mean it's gone through so many names for that area I don't want to
4: change the name of Granville street I <laughs> Granville no, not Street, Granville street
1: a- but you know it's uh you've got you used to call it the Granville mall um ah. and that used to be the casual name. Now, I don't know what you call it. The Granville Entertainment District seems to be one, but, uh, you know, it keeps on changing.
4: Yeah, I mean, it is the Entertainment District, so I'm partial to the GED. I, uh, I think, you know, we need to ensure that it continues to be the Entertainment District for Vancouver. And we encourage that nightlife and those restaurants and all those things on Granville Street because uh, it's a destination. And I think it's, uh, it's, it's a diamond in the rough. So it's seen the better days for sure, but it's a focus of our administration uh, improving uh, Gramble Street and
1: bringing new investment on Gramble Street as well. Peter, great talk. Thanks so much. Thanks so much, Bruce. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to
0: drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.